Abortion in the Church, a Document of Evangel Presbytery. Chapter 2, Abortion's Assault Upon God's Character and Law. Section 2, Natural Law Arguments. All creation declares abortions in gratitude and rebellion against our Creator. But men make science their God and mock God's truths, So we are tempted to retreat within the walls of special revelation, consigning the natural world and its scientific investigation as a pagan domain. This is a grave mistake. Natural revelation is a key part of knowing and understanding God. God's book of nature helps us to know what he has done and how he works among us. Indeed, scripture itself teaches us to ask, 1 Corinthians 11.14, quote, does not even nature itself teach you, unquote. Those truths proclaimed by nature must not be abandoned in favor of those truths revealed by Scripture. Footnote. Nature is a handmaid to Scripture. It, too, reveals the character of God at times in areas where Scripture does not. Sacred Scripture is infallible, yet not all texts of Scripture are spoken with equal clarity. Where Scripture is unclear, the book of nature helps us to evaluate what interpretations of God's Word are most sound. Footnote. Some of our fallible understandings of Scripture need refinement by nature. Footnote. Properly understood, natural revelation cannot contradict special revelation. Footnote. Any conflict between natural and special revelation, then, is due to some error in our interpretation of either or both. Conversely, when both of God's spheres of revelation address a matter, we do well to take special heed. Thus, we here state that our condemnation of abortion is not only based on God's written moral law, but also God's book of nature. Together, they bear unanimous testimony against the monstrosity of this crime. Subheading Man as Unique Creation. Scientific research shows that from the moment of conception, the unborn child possesses all the genetic information that distinguishes him from any other created species or being. The unborn child conceived in his mother is not a tree, monkey, or tumor. Footnote. He is a human being bearing the image of God with 46 chromosomes and the DNA that sets him apart from the rest of creation. He is demonstrably different from either his father or mother, with DNA drawn from both of them. He is a unique human being. As detailed earlier, physicians have tried to change the definition of conception from fertilization to successful implantation in the mother's womb. But this change makes a mockery of science and reason. The safe attachment of the child to his mother's womb does not change him in any way. There is no scientific or rational reason why implantation should define the beginning of life or qualify that life for protection. It is true that from implantation, the little one's reliance on his mother for nourishment increases 
but this increase does not bear on his right of protection. Indeed, such an argument contradicts one typical argument for abortion's so-called right, namely that one person dependent on another is less deserving of protections and rights. What a callous response to the interrelatedness of life, and specifically the charity God commands between us in the light of his charity toward us. Subheading Personhood from the Beginning If for the sake of argument we grant that the personhood of the human embryo is not yet proven to exist at fertilization, arguments based on this irrational supposition still fall flat. For in order to justify the moral rectitude of abortion at any point, one would need to establish that there is no possibility of the abortion killing a person. Yet it is impossible to demonstrate the newly conceived embryo lacks personhood. Indeed, all the evidence is to the contrary. Again, if for the sake of argument we were to accept this irrational premise, it would immediately leave us asking, at what stage of later embryonic development personhood is acquired? At what stage does what is not man somehow become man? The irrationality of this project is clear to everyone who has not allowed himself to become a bloody ideologue. This little one is a living human being when he emerges from his mother's womb because he is a living being at the moment when his life as human begins, always and forevermore, at conception. Yes, we can muddy the waters by raising abstract speculative questions on ensoulment, personhood, or quickening, desperately working to deny that conception is the beginning of life. But why such intensity in our efforts to deny protection to these little ones? The truth is, throughout history, men, often with better intentions than our own, have discussed the mystery of how and when our Heavenly Father, quote, in souls, unquote, an infant. Many of the church fathers wrote extensively on the matter, yet their opinions were never settled matters of dogma, in large part because Scripture does not directly address the topic. Footnote. Nor did these theories cause the slightest hesitation in their condemning abortion, as a grave sin from the moment of conception. In Evangelium Vitae, John Paul II puts it directly, quote, The result of conception, at least up to a certain number of days, cannot yet be considered a personal human life. But in fact, quote, from the time that the ovum is fertilized, a life is begun, which is neither that of the father nor the mother. It is rather the life of a new human being with his own growth. It would never be made human if it were not human already. Furthermore, what is at stake is so important that from the standpoint of moral obligation, the mere probability that a human person is involved would suffice to justify an absolutely clear prohibition of any intervention aimed at killing a human embryo. Precisely for this reason, over and above all scientific debates, the Church has always taught and continues to teach that the result of human procreation from the first moment of its existence 
must be guaranteed that unconditional respect, which is morally due to the human being in his or her totality and unity as body and spirit. Unquote. The church has always taught and continues to teach that abortion is the direct assault upon the providence and authority of God, our Creator. Subheading SLED Arguments, S-L-E-D. Many of the arguments employed by advocates of abortion can be divided into four categories referred to by the acronym SLED, referring to the size, level of development, environment, and degree of dependency of the preborn child. And footnote. Number one, size. Some argue abortion is justified because these little ones are beyond our view. It is permissible to kill the little one because he's too small to see, hidden inside his mother's womb. Yet God's creation is full of small organisms, and many of them have the protection of law and the sympathy of society, such as the world's smallest primate and smallest marine mammal. Shall we justify the killing of these organisms because of their size? On the contrary, it is much more grievous to destroy these little ones because of how tiny and defenseless they are. Only a monster would argue that the smaller and weaker the baby, the less claim that baby has on our protection. Number two, level of development. Some argue the limitations of the child during his early development make it permissible to kill him. The unborn child can't feel pain, can't think, isn't self-aware, and is not yet sentient, so we may kill him. Yet science is proving the little one's sensitivity to his environment at younger and younger stages of his life in the womb. Footnote. The limitations of development are irrelevant. One's right to life is not dependent on one's capacities to enjoy life or assert his personhood. Children or adults who suffer sickness, wounds, or genetic anomalies, which leave them with limited capacities, have as much claim to society's protection as those with no such limitations, both outside and inside the womb. Number three, environment. Some argue the environment in which the unborn child exists invalidates his right to be considered human. Since the unborn child doesn't, for example, breathe air, he is sufficiently other so that he deserves no protection. Of course, the same argument would never be made concerning residents of the South Pole or the International Space Station. Neither of those locations can sustain life naturally without the provision of extraordinarily complicated and costly artificial supports. The same can be said concerning victims of polio, who have for decades continued to live only by the support of an iron lung. Footnote. Number four, degree of dependence. Some argue the unborn child's dependence upon his mother undermines his right to the protection of his life. This argument is especially pernicious, for it strikes at the heart of one of the principal blessings God has ordained in human society, which is our interdependence. 
God has woven interdependence across his creation, the tree and soil, the citizen and ruler, the husband and wife, teacher and student, doctor and patient, and most preciously, mother and child. No man is an island, footnote. No man is independent. By arguing that dependence diminishes value, this argument also targets the handicapped, the elderly, the sick, the infirm, and anyone who depends on another for nourishment and care. This is the trajectory of the pro-abortion argument. This world of callous disregard for the weak and defenseless must be rejected. Now do I sleep the sleep of death Have my days come to an end Oh Lord, will you defend Come Holy Savior, come my way I pray.